This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome, guys, to episode 49 of Behind the Shield podcast. My name is James Gearing, and this week I'm very excited to bring you the man behind the 531 system, Jim Wendler. Now, if you have ever done CrossFit, inadvertently, you've probably been part of that system. Um, if you're a serious uh, strength trainer, a powerlifter, you've probably used this framework before. But um, I've used it myself through the CrossFit realm, and then also specifically, I'm programming it now as well. So I was very, very excited to reach out to Jim and discuss his philosophies on training. What I didn't expect was the amazing spectrum of topics that we would discuss along the way. So as well as strength training, we touched on all kinds of things like how amazing his parents are and, and their philosophy on life, uh, how he was almost killed in, in a motorcycle accident and all these different areas. So I'm going to keep the, the intro very short. This was a longer uh, interview because we, we just kept talking and talking and it was, it was incredible. Um, before I go, again, please rate the show on iTunes. Give us five stars. Give us a review. Let, let us know how we're doing. And then again, share, 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 share. The more you share, the more we can get the words out of these incredible minds and start fixing people from the ground up. Um, so without further ado, I introduce to you Jim Wendler. Enjoy. All right, well, welcome to Behind the Shield, Jim. Um, first question I always ask everyone is, where are we finding you today? As in where I am right now? Yeah, geographically, yes. Oh, I am in Ohio, and I am uh, just sitting in my house, and I was actually just listening to Dark Throne. That's what, I, what I'm doing. But yeah, we're in a small town in London, uh, London Ohio, and uh, it's a beautifully overcast, slightly rainy day, and things are good. 
Sounds like the uh, typical Ohio day there. My wife's from North Canton, so uh, yeah. I've been there a few times. Well, that that's it's completely gray up there all the time. At least a little farther south, we have a little sun. But uh, it's not like uh, in Orlando, trust me. You guys are, uh, you know, I used to live in Arizona for six years or so. And I used to pray for overcast days because I think there's like 340 days of sun in Arizona. So it's like the overcast days were beautiful, you know. So it also helps when it's not 115 and the sun blaring on you either. Absolutely. Well, I know um, when we go on vacation, you know, some people go and they're disappointed if they don't get the sun. Well, when you're from somewhere like Arizona or California <laughs> or Florida, it doesn't matter. You know, you're, like you said, they're almost wishing for some colder days. Like the, the novelty of putting on a sweatshirt, for example. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're from <laughs> England, right? So uh, you know everything about uh, damp dreary days too i assume yes yep yep if you can uh, maintain a positive outlook in england then <laughs> then you can do it anywhere <laughs> all right so were you were you born in uh, ohio uh, i was born in uh arlington heights illinois which is just outside of chicago and i grew up in prospect heights which is a right next to arlington heights so it's it's northwest of chicago maybe 25 20 miles or so so i okay. grew up in a very very populated area and then uh, I went to school in Colorado and in Arizona. And okay, yeah. So I, you know, I went to Kentucky. I was at University of Kentucky in Lexington for a while, and then moved up here to be part of uh, Elite FTS, and then ventured off on my own. I stayed in London. Oh, brilliant! And uh, what, what, your family unit? What was it like? What did your parents do? Uh, both my parents are teachers. Uh, my dad uh, taught at my high school and was the athletic director there. My mom taught uh, BD, behavioral disorder, and learning disorder kids for oh, brilliant. yeah forever. So I come from a uh, you know, long line of teachers, and uh, athletics was just uh, a normal part of our life. Uh, my parents... My dad is now, how old is dad? I don't even know, 72. And he still uh, <clears throat> races bikes somewhat competitively, I guess, the best way to say it. Um, he played football, college football and everything. So uh, training, uh, my mom still works out seven times a week and lifts. Believe it or not, she's almost 70. I'll just tell, she, you know, my mom always said she's always, but she's been 29 for like 30 years now. <laughs> so uh that aspect of life even though it's not exactly what i do but that kind of uh, uh how do i put this it, it was just part of our daily routine even as a, as a kid growing up and uh you know the best example i give people is on christmas if i we, if i had a training day we didn't leave for christmas dinner until training was over does that make sense? Brilliant. So it was just yeah, yeah. So it's just part of your daily routine, regardless of what's going yeah. on. It didn't matter what uh, was going on, or you know, that was part of the day, and everyone had to train. Uh, so that's you know, I talk about uh, the the strength of habit, and uh, you know, growing up in that uh, that kind of world, uh, you know, it served me well. I guess best way to say it. So obviously, don't take things to the extreme like I did, but uh, you know. I'm very happy for what they gave me. They were the best parents alive. Trust me. You know, they, uh, 
never, they always supported me no matter what they supported me through the shit times too. When I was an asshole, uh, you know, when I was in, I'll give you an example. When I was in uh, high school, you know, obviously I played sports and I trained and stuff and was, you know, always lifting always, but I also played in a, like a punk hardcore band that wasn't that good. And that was a completely different world than sports. And they completely supported that. And I played drums. And if you know anything about bands, the drummer is where you practice. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're not the guy moving all your equipment all the time, generally speaking. So they had a, you know, they were completely cool with the band coming over once a week or so. And, uh, you know, banging on the instruments, which knowing what I know now must have been fucking horrible because, you know, I pay the mortgage now and I don't like, I couldn't imagine the racket uh, that we caused. So they've always been very supportive no matter what I did. So as long as I gave it my all and, you know, was a good kid, they would pretty much open to everything. So. Uh, sounds like a great parents. You know, what, what do you think, what do you think is, is, one of the factors or are the factors that create that mindset in your parents that even in their 70s, they don't look at themselves in, in what we society regards as 70, which is, you know, uh, caseloads of medication and, you know, inactivity. Well, they've been active their whole life. So, like I said, it's kind of their habit. But I think part of it is uh, when they were tired, my parents weren't the kind of people who, one, were addicted to their work. You know, a lot of people, and this is not judging anyone, but you take away their work and they they kind of die. And that's fine because that gives them life. There's nothing wrong with that. But they were never truly addicted to their work. And number two is they never sat still. Even, like I'll give you an example, is we have to schedule everything around their schedule. Uh, they're always going places. Uh, and I'll give you the best example is one <laughs> One time when I was in college, I called up my parents, and my mom is all kind of sounds weird, you know. I'm like, well, where are you? She's like, oh, we're in Budapest. <laughs> and I was like, what, what the fuck? Like, what, how, when, why didn't you tell me? He's like, oh, you know, we just wanted to take a trip. And so they've always stayed active and not just, you know, obviously uh, training-wise, but their brains, they're always reading, they're always going places. Um, they, you know, once they retired and the kids were out of the house, you know, it was their time. And, uh, anyone who's a parent understands that for basically, you know, at the minimum 18, sometimes even more, depending on your, you know, what your kids are doing after high school, you're a parent. And I mean, there still are parents today, but now they can have some time to themselves. And I think that's something they've really lived up to. They want to make the most out of what, the time that they have. And my dad always jokes, uh, I mean, they're always going places. When I say always, I mean, I bet they're home one weekend out a month. And uh, that's not even an exaggeration. My parents did a great job of saving and investing. And uh, that allows them a lot of freedom. And uh, my dad always jokes that he's not going to leave a penny for me or my sister. <laughs> and, uh, he's like, well, I earned it. You know, you didn't earn anything. So, and I totally respect that. It's his money and it's his life and it's my mom's life and they're doing an awesome job together. They're like the ultimate boring team. That's why, you know, so. Oh, that's they brilliant. Though. Up, they don't get caught up in a lot of the bullshit either. They just yeah. kind of life and, and uh, let the world around them do whatever. They're just happy to be alive and want to experience stuff. Oh, that's amazing. They're having adventures together. So I'm assuming their uh, marriage is still really strong. 
Yeah, I mean, shit, they were married, and I don't even know. How long have my parents been married? 40 years now? Yeah. Yeah, at least 40-some-odd well, 40. 40 years now, so. Well, that's that's amazing. It's, it's funny, my grandparents, uh, my granddad was 99, he actually died of cancer, and my grandmother's still alive, and we're about to have her 100th birthday. And uh, when they moved into their community, when they were, God, I don't know, early 90s maybe late 80s uh, mm-hmm. my grand what my granddad remarked he's like it's nice here but the problem is it's full of old people and they were all yeah. in their 70s and 60s <laughs> yeah I and mean, i think uh i think that's something to be said you know you are who you hang out with and sometimes like here's a good example is when i <clears throat> i had a uh spinal fusion surgery and uh at you know we you have checkups every so often and stuff and just sitting into the in the waiting room if that doesn't inspire you to do a shitload of rehab and get on your feet, then I don't know what will because it's just a mess of fucked up people. And some of it is legitimate and some of it's on themselves for not doing the things that they need to do. And I looked around because, you know, the waiting room and then a big osteo, you know, osteopedic, I guess what you say, uh, waiting room is just chock full of people with problems, you know, from knees to backs to shoulders, whatever. And most of these people didn't do anything, just barely got up and walked around. And that really inspired me to get off my ass. So uh, but I can see, man, if you're surrounded by that day by day, it's easy to, to fall into that trap. Yeah, absolutely. Now, have you ever heard of uh, foundation training by a guy called uh, Eric Goodman? No, no. Okay. He, he uh, has this, it's not even a system, it's just a, a real basic movement practice. It almost looks like uh, Pilates and yoga had a baby. It's mm-hmm. all either standing or lying down, super simple, but it's basically reversing the, the damage from sitting, you know, which even as yeah. an athlete, we, we do a lot. And uh, I tore my back about three years ago and used, used just this movement practice. That was it. And healed my back to the point where I was able to deadlift, you know, heavier than I ever had before. Um, and I went out and got certified. So that's something for you, for you to kind of look into if you want, as far as the rehab side, because I was blown away at how well it worked. It's the... You know, I, I I coach athletes now. I work with athletes, uh, especially high school kids. And but I still do a boatload of stuff on online and stuff like that. And one thing I always tell people is if you're going into a surgery, go in as strong as you possibly can. Uh, because this is when I, I trained as much as I could leading up to my surgery. And it took me a while to get the surgery. So whatever. But... I walked a half mile like 12 hours after my spine was fused. Oh, wow. And uh, by three months, I was completely healed. And the doctor was blown away. And, you know, part of it is, you know, my parents see this too, is you, every time you train, you know, it doesn't, I'm not talking about hardcore social media training. That's what I call it. That's when you just go crazy. <laughs> uh, but you, you build uh, interest like you wouldn't bank and it's building interest for times when, when things get shitty. Uh, my wife is a good example that she gave birth to our son six and a half years ago or so or six, no, six years ago. And her bounce back was easy. Like, you know, within nine months, you know, six months or even probably even she already had her, her uh, six pack back and she was running and squatting doing everything. And it was from all the, two decades prior of training her ass off that you get some, you build some interest. So when you do have that downtime or when things shit, uh, 
shit hits the fan, so to speak, uh, you're able to recover much better. Um, so I really think that I'm not uh, the rehab that I did. A lot of it was done beforehand, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think they, they refer to it as prehab now. Yeah, um, but the, it wasn't, you know, funky movements. It was just running, jumping, lifting, running, jumping, lifting. You do that for enough time that when, you know, <clears throat> it, it, it helps. Let's just put it that way, beyond belief. And I've uh, seen it happen more times than not to, for it just to be a, you know, one-off coincidence. So, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly impressed with the way my parents, you know, they, we still go hiking sometimes and they're fine. They went to the, uh, they hiked through the Amazon forest. <laughs> oh, really? Year. Yeah. <laughs> and they hiked up to, uh, Machu Picchu. Uh, so, you know, there's something to be said just about getting out and just moving, uh, so whatever. Okay. But yeah. All right. But yeah, I feel right now my back feels better than it ever has. And you know, you hear all these horror stories, like you'll never be the same, man. I feel like a completely different person. So, you know, whatever. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly it though. I mean, I know I had uh, Matt Chan, the, the, uh, CrossFit athlete, who's also a firefighter. Um, on and the same thing i mean he was in such good condition he had a, a near-death experience he came off a mountain bike and the handle went right into his uh into his leg and severed his his not the actual main femoral artery but the next branch from that and the doctor said if he wasn't in such good shape he would have bled out and died right there in the forest so yeah i had a uh, motorcycle accident i got hit uh on a motorcycle and I didn't have a helmet on, didn't have anything on. The guy was going about 60, 70 miles an hour and just crashed right into me. And uh, I don't, that's why I survived. Now, that doesn't guarantee you survival because all it takes is one big truck smashing into you and you're dead. But uh, the way that I was hit, it was a huge difference because I knew how to tuck and roll because uh, I got dragged 100 feet on the highway. And a hundred yards, I should say, about a football field length. And, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I, I got up and walked out of the hospital, you know, but I was, you know, obviously very lucky in, in some sense. And then obviously I'll give you the good, ex about a month after I got hit, I was still covered in bandages. You know, I was bleeding everywhere. I had road rash, like you wouldn't believe. And my wife and I were driving on a trip and we stopped at a, somewhere to get some food. And some guy asked me why I was all bandaged up. And I'm like, well, I got hit by a car. I was on my motorcycle. And he's like, man, you're so lucky. I'm like, what fucking world do you live in? We're getting hit by a fucking car. Lucky. <laughs> like, you must have a shitty life. But I mean, I understood what he said. But at that time, I was just frustrated because obviously I was pretty fucked up. Uh, but I, yeah, I really think just uh, ironic, you know, the, all the network I did uh, paid off. Because I, I was able to tuck my chin uh, into my chest and you know save my head, and uh, that's a you know I didn't roll around like a rag doll either, so anyway, it's a little depressing. So <laughs> no, you're good, you're good. Well, yeah. I mean, it all pertains to what you know what, what I want to talk about anyway, which is uh, resiliency. You know, whether it's um, physical or mental. Um, so I just want to scale, uh, pull back just for a moment. So when you were younger, what were the sports that you played in school? Uh, well, when I was, uh, you know, really young, we did, uh, obviously 
baseball was huge. Track was massive. Uh, football, when I always started, when I was like 13 or 14. Um, so I was a little older when I started playing football. Uh, ran cross country. Uh, played basketball. And in high school, I did football, obviously. I played basketball for a number of years, and I ran track through the discus. That was my big big event in track. That was a huge uh, – I ended up going downstate and being all-state my senior year in discus. So, uh, But the primary sports were you know, football and track and a little bit of basketball. Okay. Um, so what did your, your strength training look like back then? Uh, I started training when I was in eighth grade, so I was about 13 years old. And uh, we, my dad worked at the high school, and I wasn't obviously in the high school then. Uh, I was in junior high. So he would take me over to the high school three days a week, and he looked me because I was, I was badgering him for like a year and a half or something, two years to get in the weight room. And he told me, you know, not yet, just play sports. And we obviously we ran cross country and did track and stuff like that. And I did push ups and sit ups and chin ups and stuff like that. Uh, and then he finally caved. Uh, probably just me, you know, he just wanted to shut me up, I think. And I'll never forget exactly where I was. He said, if you start this, you will not quit. And uh, he made it very clear to me that this was not going to be some, you know, couple week venture and then I was done. So we started off, I think, just on the old. And this is probably dating myself an old Nautilus machine for like a two months or so. Just did this, you know, there's all kinds of different machines on the old Nautilus uh, machines. There's tons of them. And then after maybe a month and a half, two months, we just went right to squats, deadlifts, benches, inclines, you know, curls, stuff like that. And, uh, so, you know, at an early age, everything that I did was geared towards athletics. So it wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't have any grand plan. I would just, you know, I kept a little notebook and made notes about how much I lifted. And I'd just try to lift more the next day or do something, you know, like that. And uh, we didn't, I didn't have any books or anything. You just kind of just did what you thought you did. And, uh, you know, I got... I was taught how to squat by uh, reading the the, uh, the signs in the weight room. You know, they have the A little illustrations. <laughs> yeah, that's how you learned. You know, and uh, about halfway through my eighth grade year, the guy who would end up being my training mentor uh, said one word to me. He said, uh, or one phrase, said, "You, know, you should probably do some straight leg deadlifts." And I was like, "Okay." And then I, you know, I didn't talk to anyone. I was nervous because I was around high school kids and they were much bigger. And then it took me about another six months or so a full year from when I started training that my mentor actually started uh, realizing that I was serious and uh, kind of took me under his wing a little bit. Um, and I asked him why. I always tell this story. I said, why did it take you so long? You know, years later, I said, you know, you didn't talk to me for a whole year. And he said, well, I wanted to make sure you were serious. Because he had helped so many people uh, for so many years, and they would come in for a couple of weeks and leave. So it just starts becoming an exercise and just frustration. You know, yeah. you spend all this time helping people out, and then they don't take it. You know, they take it for granted, and then pissed up. You know, piss it off. So, uh, so it, at that point, by the time I think I was a freshman, you know, around that time, I started 
programming a little bit, right? You know, understood that, you know, things have to be in balance a little bit. But at that point, we started adding box jumps and uh, bounding. We added uh, hand cleans. Uh, and that's that was it. Most, I mean, I probably benched for every 30 or 50 sets of squats I did, I probably did one set of bench. And we weren't very upper body oriented. And that's probably my one thing I would maybe change, you know, because my upper body has always been the weakest and my lower body has always been the strongest. But, you know, from an athletic point of view, it makes sense. Um, but we did a shit ton of jumping and a shit ton of running and a lot of squats and a lot of cleans. That was our big thing. And uh, so even from an early age, that's all we did was how to get better at football, how to get better at track. That was it. That's how we trained. And I didn't have any aesthetics goals, really. I don't, didn't really care. But, you know, at the same point, I was in high school. I was pretty thin. You know, I had like 8%, 5% body fat. I was just fucking shredded all the time. So, you know, never really. And that's you couldn't eat anything you wanted back in those days. Today, everything is so complicated. Uh, but we also, you know, to give you an example is I charted my running and I think outside of sports practice, because of our physical education classes, you were going to run at least six miles a week, five miles a week, you know, just as part of your regular day-to-day activities in, in school. And uh, you, you know, that adds up over time. You know, we, we ran a mile. We, our mile was part of our junior high work in PE. So, you know what I'm saying? So, uh it was running was just part of life. And, uh, you know, this day and age, it's completely back ass words. Um, so, you know, I actually have, and I don't know how I have it. My parents somehow got it. The, all the mile times from when I was in seventh grade, I think from all the boys in our junior high. And I think the average time for the mile, and this is like 60 kids, maybe 60 boys, time of mile was like 7.30 or something. Wow, that's the average? That was the average, yeah. I'd have to go back and you know check it, but it was under eight minutes. Well under eight minutes. And that's for about 12-year-olds? Yeah. yeah. 11, it was 6th, uh, 7th, and 8th. Uh, I think it was 6th, 7th, and 8th. Yeah, that's very impressive. Maybe it was just 7th. But yeah. And we had, uh, I ran to 5.36 or something. Damn. Uh, in 7th grade. And that was, you know, people like, ah, were you in good shape? And I was like, I guess, but I just ran like I was scared to death. That's how I ran. Like I just didn't want to fucking lose. And I, you know, when I ran cross country, the first couple times you run, you don't know really how to run. You just kind of go out there and run. And then whatever you finish, you finish. And then I started getting competitive and I just fucking would run as hard as I could for as long as I could. That's just, there's no, it was like, uh, Steve Prefontaine. You ever read anything of him? Um, the, the great runner. The name rings a bell, but I know I have not read his stuff. Yeah, he's like, uh, fuck pacing, man. I'm just going to run. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, it's, that's when I knew I was different, I think. As I remember, we were running cross country. And as you finish the, the, uh, when you finish the race, they give you a popsicle stick to give you the number that you finish. Because right? there's so many kids that, you know, run cross country. You have three or four schools and there's a, you know, boatload of kids. And I remember, I was neck to neck with this one kid and they had the popsicles, you know, at the finish line and I fucking dove head first to grab on that thing. 
just to beat the guy. Now, my dad was, I don't know if my dad never said anything to me, but I know now knowing how my dad is, he must've been terribly proud. And, uh, but, uh, yeah. And that's one thing I always, you know, just working with athletes today, the, the amount of rain bomb that one can do today with kids is much lower. And I, I believe, and there's no science to back this up. It's, we simply just don't have the foundation of fitness with kids. It's not the kids' fault. It's, it's the adults' fault, uh, about, you know, how this happened. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I agree 100%. My my little boy's school, he is uh, 10 now, so he's fifth grade. Um, but I'm at the elementary school, I've always been very, very impressed. They It's kind of an extracurricular thing, but they have a thing called Morning Mile, where if you drop drop the kids off early, they get to do some laps before they even start class. And then now they've actually put PE back every single day, so now they, do, they can run around more. So I, I don't know how much he actually runs during a week but i bet if i put a fitbit on it would be several miles probably yeah and that's you know it doesn't have to be crazy um but i think that's uh you know we i have a 13 year old who does this just about the same thing they have their uh if you're not in a sport if they're in a sport they practice generally in the morning uh as part of their quote on you know their physical you know pe period uh and if not that's when you can train and they have, you know, lifting and running and stuff like that. It's not terribly comprehensive, nor should it be. But, uh, you know, I, I, it's it's similar to, like, learning a language. They always tell you, you know, the best age to learn a language is between, and I'm just making this up, let's just say five and ten. And after that little window, it's harder for you to learn another language. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I think that's kind of similar to some of this stuff physically, is if you get in that window... And it doesn't have to be the super Soviet secret thing, you know, where you, you know your volume must be sixty percent every Wednesday of what you did on Tuesday, you know, and sled drags must be done. But I think that if you have that base of fitness and mobility and even gymnastics-like movements, uh, it's it's funny because we do some gymnastic movements with the football team as part of their warm-up, and I don't have any way of quantifying this, but the kids who can do cartwheels better are generally the, are the kids that play better yeah well, absolutely i mean you know the the i think the fundamental thing that a lot of people miss is just movement in general so if you can you know walk on your hands or yeah. you know roll or any of those things it's just gonna it's gonna uh create a different uh learning curve in your body which will translate to the skills that you want to do on the field yes yes and uh you know the best group of athletes i ever worked with in the weight room and the easiest to coach corrections were male cheerleaders because they all had gymnastics backgrounds and they understood where their body was in space. So if you tell them, listen, you need to open up your knees a little bit more on the squat or push your butt back or they instinctively knew how to do it because they had, they know where their bodies are. Yeah. Gymnasts uh, have such amazing control over, you know, every kind of plane. It's incredible. Yeah. And it's really awesome. And ironically, they were the hardest working guys I've ever worked with. Uh, now granted this was at Kentucky and you don't know anything. I didn't know this either is university of Kentucky for about 10 years, won about 10 national championships in the cheerleading comps. So there, these kids were not just guys who decided to try out for the team. Yeah. These were some heavily, of the best. Yeah. These are the, you know, the recruited kids who knew, uh, but boy, do they work and they, they made no apologies. Like, yeah, we're male cheerleaders. Yeah. But look, look who we get to hang out with all day. 
Well, exactly. <laughs> when people make fun of them, like, dude, I get to hold yeah. girls' asses all day. What are you talking about? Yeah. Like, uh, you guys got to hang around sweaty dudes. It sucks. <laughs> so, but right. uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I was going to say, so we, we talked about um, you know, your journey through up to that point. So how did you get into the uh, competitive powerlifting? Uh, well, you know, since I've been 13, this is, I've just been obsessive. Okay. About strength training. I did as my, uh, since my dad was the athletic director, he would get, uh, training magazines sent to him, you know, from, uh, especially through track, track and field was huge where I was. So we'd always get all these track and field magazines. So you, uh, read a lot of articles. I saved and read everything I could from there. Uh, so all the way, and then I went and played football in college, and my education continued there as far as strength training. I was very, very, very lucky to have a strength coach by the name of Dan Worth at Arizona when I was there. And Dan was, I probably drove him nuts. He probably fucking hates me. You know, he doesn't hate me, but he, I, I know I drove him nuts because I would ask him a million questions and I would always say, Can I try this? And he always, it, it, in a way, he probably hated it. In a way, it was nice because at least some kids wanted to come in there and kick ass and try new things where other kids had to be forced. And I totally get it. Um, but he allowed me to experiment with some different stuff. And uh, so by the time I got out of playing football, I had accumulated a shit ton of knowledge, at least at that point I had. Uh, um, and I've always loved training. I, mean, I just love it. And that was... Uh, just part of the deal. So, you know, after I started, stopped playing football, I knew I needed, I wanted to keep on lifting, obviously. And that seemed like the next step uh, because it's just what I wanted to do. You know, I don't know. And from there, uh, I was, uh, you know, I trained at Kentucky and then I met Dave Tate at Elite FTS um, through my work at Kentucky. And then, uh, you know, I had no idea. I was not very familiar with powerlifting. Um, to give you an example, the first time I bought a powerlifting USA, the top 100 list is always in the back, and they rotated every month uh, about what weight class. And so the first one I got, I think, was in the 242 weight class at the top 100. And I'm looking at these numbers. I'm like, holy shit. I had no idea there were squat suits and bench shirts. <laughs> So, you know, I had no idea they even existed. So I was like, holy shit, like, you know, I thought I was strong. You know, I benched 400. I squatted close to 700. And I was like, wow, like, I suck. I thought I was kind of strong. And these guys are freaks. You know, I had, had no concept of it. So, you know, uh, but anyway, to make a long story short, I had met Dave. And then at that time, Dave was, uh, you know, running Elite FTS. But he's also hosting a big meet every year that was just the, even today people call it the most perfect meet it was run smoothly it was at a great venue um everything was perfect the warm-up room was good so he said hey why don't you try and do the meet you know so i registered and i did fairly well me and my training partner at the time kevin deweese who is uh trains firefighters now he's in a, he's a firefighter who does their uh their training they recruited him to do all their stuff anyway uh that's how I got started. I just kind of got the bug and uh, did that for a number of years. And then, you know, once I reached my goals, I kind of want to do something else. And I'm back to what I was doing prior to uh, powerlifting and just 
little more movement athletic oriented, I guess, best way to say it. And I feel better and I'm 42 now. And, uh, you know, my best years of at least as actual weight lifted are behind me. I totally accept that. And, uh, you know, football has taken its toll. Uh, and obviously powerlifting has taken its toll and truth be told is, you know, I just know in my heart that I, to do, to get to a top level, because I'm not terribly talented, requires a tremendous amount of sacrifice on a lot of, and I'm just not willing to do it. Just like I'm not willing to walk on to a division one football team and go through all this shit again. and <laughs> just not in the mentality. Um, I, so I still train my ass off and, uh, I started volunteering at the high school last year, the local high school here, their strength coach, and it's been awesome. We uh, we are now six and zero after winning only three games last year, uh, and we were able to completely change our offense to a downhill run style offense, which we we throw maybe one or two passes a game. So it's not like we're we're sneaking up on anyone. We just have we just line everyone up and we just, you know, bulldoze people. And it's been awesome working with these kids. They've, you know, I think it's important if you have the time, uh, to give back, um, especially to your community, it's easy to go online and make dumb videos and all that stuff. But I think the real, the real, uh, change can happen on a personal level, uh, because these kids get to, you get to interact with them. You get to know them. Um, and coaching online is completely different than coaching in person. So I think we got about 50 or 60 kids that I work with from, you know, from eighth grade all the way up to senior in high school. And, uh, the, just the, seeing the physical change and seeing the, you know, you give these, I'll give you an example. We have 14 seniors who have endured some shitty seasons. They've had some tough seasons and now you're able to give them a, a positive, you know, going away party basically. And uh, the, also the head coach, Kyle is a friend of mine and it, being a head coach in high school football is, uh, you don't do it for the money. Trust me. It is an unforgiving job in which you're, uh, you know, every day there's more shit you have to deal with and seeing him succeed has made it's, it's more about them than other people than about me. And it's nice to do that, I guess. So, yeah, well, it's funny. I, mean, I heard you say this. I think it was, um, I don't know if it was with Mark Bell's interview, mm -hmm. but you were talking about the same thing. And I actually had this on my list to, to underline because what you said is something that I say a lot myself is, you know, we, we have these slogans and you hear like make America great again and all this stuff. And just like you underlined and it's a bunch of people uh, sharing stuff on Facebook or Instagram, or whatever, and then not walking out their front door and actually changing their community. So I think that by doing, you know, what you're doing. And I've, I actually coach free classes at my local CrossFit gym. I don't get paid for that yeah. either. Um, you know, that's how you f you make this place better. Is you start in your community, you walk outside your front door, yes. and you fix fix and help people that you can actually physically touch. Well, I think the part of the, the frustration is, and I'll give you, this is kind of a hard, hopefully I get this right, is I tell people all the time, don't try to change the world because you're not going to do it. You change it by being a good parent, Okay. I always say, if you want to change the world, just raise good kids. So I'm not my, my initiative, I guess, or goal is never global. 
it's always stay local, stay within your house, make sure your house is kept in order. You know, that doesn't mean clothes are put away. It means that, you know, you're taking care of your kids and making sure that what you're doing is perfect. And then, you know, helping out the people in your community as much as possible, because it's like the, you know, the ripple effect or the, the butterfly effect. Uh, I could put up a post on Facebook or something and it may reach more people, but it's not going to do as much good because, uh, you know, let's say I help kid X. Now kid X is going to help his kids. You know, that's how you, that's how the positive movement starts. It doesn't start by trying to be global. It's just stay local. And then the effects will be far reaching because I'll give, you know, the, the guy who mentored me, Darren Llewellyn, just one guy at a high school, you know, and he influenced me, and now I get to influence everyone. You know, that's, that's from Darren. That's from my dad and Darren. That's it. They didn't try to you know, ch- change the world, so to speak. They just gave what they could to their, uh, you know, the people around them, and then that, that becomes far-reaching. I think people get intimidated when you're you know, trying to change the world because, like, well, can I really? I mean, what am I going to do? It's not about that. And maybe they get a little frozen, you know, because like, oh, there's nothing I can do. I can't, uh, you know, I can't influence legislation. Well, that's not your job. Your job is just to raise good kids. And if you don't, then try and, you know, teach, coach, mentor something, you know, try and help people out. And, uh, you know, it, it does take up a lot of time, but uh, it does give back uh, tenfold. Um, and, and the other thing, too, is, you know, I have a talent. I'm not dumb. I'm not going to be totally humble all the time. And, you know, I'm always trying to learn, but these kids could benefit from it. And, uh, I'm sure there's other people that could probably do a better job, but there's a lot of people who could do it a lot worse too. So, uh, yeah. Well, I think that's another great point as well Is a lot of people don't do things because they're fear of perfection or lack of yeah, perfection well, instead of just getting out there and just, you doing know, that's, it. I remember there's a significant point in my life when I was at, playing football in college where I decided I'm going to stop caring about failing. If I fail, I'm going to fail probably. And that at that point, everything changed in my life, everything. And I stopped caring about failing. And I just, that's just what happens. Like, you know, when you play football, I don't know if you've ever, you're from England. So I doubt it because football. Well, we play real football. Yeah. You guys play. <laughs> but in football, the coaches are there, especially when you get to a higher level of college, there's no bullshit. They will fucking put you right in your place no matter who you are or what you do. Okay. There's no coddling at all. Maybe it's changed. I don't know. But holy shit, you fuck up, you are going to be dealt with. And uh, in fact, my coach in college, if you fucked up a drill twice, you're out. You don't get to do it anymore. You know, because you're wasting everyone's fucking time. And uh, that's just how it was. And... uh what was that? Where was I going with this? Oh shit, man! I brained it. Yeah, fear of failing. So yeah, you get scared because man, what you know, coach going to yell at me? Well, you got to take a chance. And uh, I think people are way too scared to get yelled at or criticized. Like someone sent me a nasty, two nasty emails today already. It's like, man, what am I going to do? Like I'm, <laughs> I don't care. Uh, I get a, I get a lot of criticism, but let's just say I get a hundred good things sent to me, but then two or three really mean, evil shit sent to me. Uh, instead of concentrating on the two or three things, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm good. I'm doing some good here. I'm helping out. Um, 
and you know, people don't see that, nor do I care. I really don't care if they see it because I'm, I just see the the help that I'm giving, and I, you know, it's not like I'm carrying cancer here, but it's really awesome to see the kids change and uh, seeing my own kids develop. Um, so, yeah, but and I think like and like you said, you're you're you know you're being a leader in that respect and teaching the kids that you teach to to do the same thing. But again, if 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 a uh, other people see what you're doing and do the same thing. Now you become part of this big uh, uh, patchwork quilt of, yeah. of you know good things, and, and then eventually you take a step back and you have changed the world. Yeah, and, you know, in, in that tiny. You part. know, the other thing is, like, if you asked me to tutor math, like I'd be horrible. Like I just, <laughs> so you know, help with what you're good at, whether or not it could be anything. And uh, I think that's a, you know, like I would expect my mom, for example. My here's a good example. My mom's not going to strength train the local high school team, but what she did was she uh, cooked meals for the homeless for like 20 years. That's what she did, and because uh, she was like she loved cooking, and that's what she was good at. So she did what she could, you know. And uh, so uh, it's just a matter of you know you help out with what you can. And luckily, I'm able. You know, the business allows me a little more flexibility than a nine to five job, and. Uh, so that that certainly helps too. All right. Well, well, transitioning a little bit to helping, I'm gonna kind of testify myself. So I have inadvertently or unknowingly been doing your five three one system for several years. I got into CrossFit uh, yeah. about nine years ago now, um, and it was it was in there. I know the 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 programming, you know. Um, the, the the main site use, and then the coach at the first actual physical gym I went to a few years later. And put it in, but with with the CrossFit thing, I'm realizing now, unless you're there every single day, which is kind of not the point of, of you know doing a hard CrossFit thing, you miss you know the, some of your programming. You're kind of spottily uh, yeah. training the way you're supposed to. So very recently, I mean, literally about two months ago, I revisited it just on my own, separately from my training, because I'm I've got some uh, stuff I'm doing within the fire department is going to be very challenging at the end of the year. So I wanted to add a, a focused strength training component to my, my training. Um, and I was blown away by two things. Firstly, the simplicity of it. And then secondly, how it didn't take a huge amount of time. Because as a firefighter and anyone else that's listening that's in the first responder position, you know, we are... We don't have a huge amount of time. A lot of times we're sleep deprived. So I find there's a much more success with a very uh, compact training routine than something where you're going to spend hours and hours, you know, in a gym. So for the guys that don't know, I haven't heard what 531 is. Could you could you tell us what it is and then and then uh, kind of elaborate why it's yeah, well, being used successfully? I'm going to uh, go off on a tangent real quick. The reason... Uh, firefighters or I think they call them LEOs and now on the internet, uh, law enforcement officers, uh, they often have to train like athletes. Okay. Because much of their physical demands are similar to, let's say a football player who has to be fairly strong, has to be kind of quick, has to be able to do, uh, be in shape for lack of a better term. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You have to be mobile. Basically everything you kind of have to have as an athlete. But when you train an athlete, you don't just squat them every day and hope for the best. There's a variety of things that you need to do. So because of that, your strength training has to be very efficient because you have to do all this other shit too. It's not just about lifting. Being stronger is great. 
but you also have to be able to run. You have to be able to jump. You have to be able to move. You have to be able to do skills practice, you know, your actual work that you do on the field. Does that make sense? Yes. So the program itself is kind of built for people that, uh, now you can always customize it in different ways, but it's, it's a root basis is in athletics or at least that's how it started. Now things have evolved over time that you can now, uh, customize it to however you want. Um, so basically it's perfect. I'm not saying it's perfect. It is a good choice. Uh, for people in that arena. Um, we've worked with everyone from, uh, you know, older gentlemen to power lifters to athletes to just regular dudes who want to get strong. So there's a wide variety of people that can, that can be helped. And I'm not, of course, I want, I believe in what I do, but I also believe that there's a million ways to skin a cat. But that's why I set up the program uh, with the five principles that I preach. And if you apply the five principles to your training, I believe that you're going to get better. Okay. And going back to your original question, like what is the five through one program? It is a one. It is very, if you're going to do the strict program or some of the variations, it's very black and white for the main lift. Okay. Does that make sense? Uh, now, of course there's always variations in there that we do, but uh, for the most part, the program is built around, um, knowing exactly what you're going to do on every given day. And so I think that's one of the big reasons why it helps a lot of people. Cause for most people that start lifting, they just go in there and they just wing it and winging it will work for a while. You know, just like if you just run around for a while, you're going to get in better shape. But at some point, usually, you know, a couple months, six months or something, you're going to come to a standstill. You don't know where to go from there. And that's kind of what I try to do for people say, Hey, when you go in this, look at your paper, this is what you do. Okay. So they, they have a plan. Now, like I said, I'm not saying it's perfect, but at least having a plan will get you 99% of people will get better because they have a plan as long as it's rooted in some, some common sense. So the five principles that I base everything on. So every time that I work with someone or develop something, I, go back and say, does it stay true to these five principles? If it doesn't, then I have to change something. So it's always start too light. That means we always, we never go balls to the wall with uh, volume or intensity in relation to your 1RM. Progress slow. So we have continued success for a long period of time. The majority of time we use basic compound movements. Now, of course, there's always room for assistance work in uh, isolation, but we base the majority of the workout on compound movements. Um, we believe in settling, setting uh, personal records. Now, this can happen every day or this could happen once every six weeks. Uh, it just depends on what you're training for and how you set it up and your age and stuff like that. And number five was recently added two years ago, and it's balance. Now, balance doesn't mean you push as much as you pull. Okay, you've you know if you do fifty reps of pushing, you got to do fifty reps of pulling. That doesn't what I mean by balance. It doesn't mean your hamstrings look the same as your quads. Balance means that that uh, you <clears throat> you train multiple components uh, at the same time. And when I say multiple components, that's really not a great way of saying it. That you address other needs in your training other than strength. So. 
for the majority of people, at least these three things need to be addressed, regardless of what you do. I don't care if you're a football player. I don't care if you're a soccer mom or if you're 60 years old or whatever. Is some kind of strength training, some type of aerobic or conditioning work, and some kind of mobility or flexibility or movement work. Now, how those fit into your training is going to be dependent on your goals and who you are. But at the very least, you need those three things. Now, if you're an athlete, you obviously need speed work and you know agility work and skill work. But at the very least, those three things need to be addressed. And I don't. When I say balance, too, it doesn't always mean you. If you spend an hour lifting, doesn't mean you have to spend an hour stretching. It just there has to be some kind of balance within there. It's like I call it making a stew. Okay, you don't just throw a pound of everything in the stew and hope for the best. So when there's a lot of meat. You have to put in maybe slightly fewer vegetables, oh, excuse me, vegetables, right? When there's a little bit of meat, maybe you can add some more vegetables. Uh, basically like that. If you have, uh, you know, whatever, you get the point. So I think of the problem that people have generally with training, especially for people that have multiple components, like an athlete or a firefighter, is they dump everything on at once and they don't understand that there's a price to pay for everything that you do. So for example, let's say you're a cross country runner. Strength is important, but it's not the most important thing. Okay. So you're not, you wouldn't ask that guy to lift four days a week. He could lift two days a week and he just have a little sprinkle of strength training to get him good. Okay. With uh, efficient movements and efficient training. And more of his time could be spent on running form and some speed work and obviously running, you know, actually running. Um, now, if you take a power lifter, he's obviously doesn't need to run a marathon, but he needs some type of aerobic capacity uh, to help him recover for health, uh, to help lower his uh, resting heart rate between sets so he can recover better between sets. So he may only need three or four days of very easy, you know, riding a bike or walking or something like that for, so his ratios would be completely different. Yeah. And I think that's important for, for, you know, all us in, in our profession to understand too, is you're going to have that within the police service, within the fire service, you're going to have your, um, you know, ex linebacker who is 300 pounds and is also a, a policeman and he's going to train very differently than the triathlete yes. 160 pound police. Mm -hmm. I'm going to train differently, but it's going to, have the same uh it's going to have the same components just uh in different uh different measures i guess yeah yeah exactly so, exactly um so i want to touch on something else as well i uh, have you uh heard of julian Pinot? no no okay he's, he's from his uh organization called strong fit um but he is uh, very big on the the strongman training for, again for for putting the balance back in um, especially with crossfitters that have the weakness in the posterior chain from all the kipping and the Olympic movements. Um, so it's a lot of sandbag carries and sleds. And I noticed in your uh, 531 Forever, your kind of re revised program, how you've you got emphasis on sled work and, and vests and things like that. So what, what made that change? Uh, well, the, the, the hard thing to do when you when – you, I'm, I'm a real stickler for understanding and programming. Uh, there is a price to pay for everything that you do, okay? And it's hard to quantify some of that stuff when you put it in part of a program, okay? So when someone says, uh, hey, I want to add sandbag carries, 
Well, if you add something into your workout, guess what you have to do? You got to take something away. It has to be accounted for. And so that's hard to quantify. Um, the, that's the reason why barbell training is so easy to program is because it's easy to quantify. You have weight and you have reps and you have volume. It's, it's just numbers. It's math. Okay. Uh, with a sandbag and stuff, like, you know, it's hard to, like, how do you incrementally load it? What's, you know, what's the, the price that you pay? Does that make sense? Um, so it becomes, uh, very difficult to, to program as far as, uh, especially in the written word. Now it's obviously easier when you're there in person because you can, you know, we, I have every kid I train, I have indicators, you know, that I know, Hey, we need to back this kid off. Hey, we need to back, you know, we can, we can push this kid. Um, and that's easy to do in person. But you know, the main goal of when you write a book is you're trying to help people out and especially people that don't know anything, you know, uh, my target audience are people that generally there are other, they do other jobs and they need to be, they need to be, I don't want to say spoon fed, but they need to like, this is what I do. Does that make sense? Because I, it's the same thing as when I go and get my truck fixed, don't just, uh, show me what I need to do. I don't need to know all the ins and outs because I, that's not my job. Uh, same thing with the guy who does my taxes. Just tell me what I need to do. So, uh, I think with like the, the weight vest, I had done the weight vest for quite a while, but as part of my back rehab, I wore my weight vest quite a bit to strengthen my back and my abs. Uh, and then I used that as part of my, uh, what I call my physical, uh, movement, GPP, stuff like that. And it was, it was had a profound effect on me. Now the trick was how do I include this into the training program? And, you know, I'll give you an example in the, early 2000s kettlebells became really big right everyone jumped on the kettlebell bandwagon and it became that or nothing when the reality of it is it's a good tool uh as part of a total training program but how do i incorporate this into my regular workouts and that's where all the work comes in um and that's why we include it as part of our assistance. We, we have assistance categories now that allows you to track uh, certain volumes and stuff like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So all that little stuff, now we, because now we program the assistance work and the supplemental work and the main work, all that stuff is all programmed. Now all that shit can now fit in and now you have a way of organizing your training. Um, and the problem is, is, and this happened again with the whole kettlebell revolution. There was a lot of things like the sandbag became big and all this stuff. The issue that I had with every one of those people was they never took the time to, to put it as part of a total training program. It was just the program. Does that make sense to you? And it drove me. Yeah. It's like, it's like when you see someone say squats, three sets of 10, it's like, well, what does that fucking mean? You have to give me something. I have to know. And even as a kid, I understood like, well, what is that? Like, is it all the same weight? Are the, all the sets hard or all the sets easy? You know, so you need to, I had to find a way of kind of quantifying it and understanding about how it fit into the total picture. As an example, uh, if your goal is to become a strong, fast athlete, kettlebells are fine, but they certainly, they're not the meat in your stew. Okay. There's, there's much more efficient and better ways that have been proven for hundred, you know, hundred years of, you know, getting stronger. 
and uh, and faster and all that stuff. However, they they still do work, but how do they work within the, con- the context of the total program? And that's where a lot of that work came in. And it took years to figure that out. And, you know, so I guess that's the best way to put it is it takes time when something new is brought in. You just can't just jump on it uh, because at some, like I tell everyone who's in this industry, at some point you got to lay down your spear and say, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. And within that, you have to have like my five principles. You have to have an, uh, a core belief that you believe in and really believe in, not just uh, you say it, you don't give it lip service. And then that within those core beliefs, though, you have to be able to change enough or be flexible enough to include other things and understand your training and programming enough to account for those things. And, uh, you know, with, uh, so I guess that's, it just takes time. It, you know, part of it was the back surgery and part of it was, man, you just, you can't, you can't just give me a, like a, a new thing, right. Like, and say, well, here you go. Like it, it takes years of experimenting to figure like, oh, okay, I see where this now, how this affects this or the train effect that one has when you use this. So everything that needs to be accounted for. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly because I've been on, you know, I'm 43 myself. So I've been on a journey and I was an athlete ever since I was a kid as well. Um, and, you know, the, all you hit the nail on the head. All these implements are fantastic tools. Now, I don't just do sandbags. I don't just do sleds. It's all, you know, part of the, the grand plan. But there's also things that I used to do, like um, you know, the Olympic lifting and stuff that as a fireman, which is my main thing, is to be able to, you know, do my job well and protect my family if, if God forbid, something happens. Uh, so I you know, do martial arts as well. So does it pertain to those two? Now, being able to do a full Olympic snatch I'll do it when it's programmed, you know, if, it, if it's in, in, um, I'll work out in the, in the gym that day, but that's not a focus of mine. But the, the strongman sandbag stuff simulates very, very, very closely me dragging someone out of a fire. So that's the kind of stuff that I do a lot more than, yeah. Say, and, uh, you know, like I said before, your training has to be very efficient. And, uh, you know, the way that I train the kids here, it, the actual program they used took about two years to work with. And I liken it to like getting a big slab of marble that you're going to chisel. Okay. You have to be smart enough and honest enough and drop your ego enough to chip away anything that's completely pointless. Now the, the problem is the smarter that you get, the more that you can rationalize anything, right? You can, you know, I could probably rationalize rack pulls and side laterals as the only two things you need to do. You know, does that make sense? So when you're training for something specific and you have other means to do or other things to do, uh, whether it be outside of the weight room or, you know, like your life uh, in your job and stuff like that, or if you have other components to train like an athlete, you have to be brutally honest and chip away everything that doesn't really isn't completely needed because you have a very limited amount of time to train. Uh, does that make sense to you? No, it does completely, okay. especially with so, our work. Yeah. So then you, you know, you weigh everything. It's like, well, is this really going to help? Is this for, you got 60 kids in the weight room at one time. Is this something that's logical? And is this really going to help? Is the time spent working with this? Is it going to pay off? And if the answer is no, you just fucking leave it. And uh, we whittled our training 
we only do seven movements. That's it. Not in one day throughout the, the entire year. And what are those seven movements? We squat, we bench press, we trap bar deadlift, we dumbbell squat, we do a dumbbell straight leg deadlift, or we use the trap bar. We're starting to do some different stuff with the trap bar with straight leg deadlift, but a straight leg deadlift. And we do some kind of dumbbell pressing or dips, depending on if the kid's light enough, you can do dips. And we do some kind of row or chin-up. All right. So I classify those as uh, same because it's a pulling motion. I really don't care what they do. And, you know, the only things that we don't program but the kids do on their own is uh, neck work, obviously, for football. And we do uh, 100-plus face pulls every training day. That's on their own. That's what they do. But ours are seven main movements. And uh, so anyway, to make a long story short, the reason why we – I worked with this took me forever to figure out and simplify but uh what ends up happening is the kids get very good at these seven movements now if anyone's ever coached young kids it's a pain in the ass because they don't know how to do anything so if you throw a shit ton of exercise at them they're going to get good at nothing okay so it takes a long time for them to get used to squatting and deadlifting so that they do it correctly all the time and bench pressing and doing all this other stuff. Okay. So now as part of an athlete though, the good thing is one, the kids know how to do the exercises Two, Once the adaption occurs, they rarely get sore anymore, which is what I want. I don't want them to get sore because they have to run. They have to jump. They have to do other skill work. Three, after nine months or eight months of training in the off season where we're doing all this stuff, once we transition to the end season training, we can still train fairly hard without the kids ever getting sore. That's a huge thing because right now, now I will say, and this is just the details, is for the in-season training, we cut out all uh, barbell squats. And we did that because we have a, you know, maybe most of our kids play both ways. They do a shit ton of running because that's the practice. That's just the way it is. And uh, it saves their hamstrings. So we cut out the, the barbell squat during the season. We trap our deadlift because we have found that we can train at a lighter percentage of the 1RM and still make great strength gains on the trap bar. So that's our main lower body strength movement. And we kept in the bench press because we only most of our upper body work for our football players is not for strength. It's to build size. We call it building the armor. Build the armor. Uh, we kept the dumbbell squat in because I think it does great things for our hips. Uh, it allows the kids to get reach greater depths, uh, and we've never had any hip problems or any depth problems because of that, I believe. It also does a great job of uh, iso- uh, isometrically uh, <clears throat> training the arms and upper back because all our – like I'll give you an example. When we first started dumbbell squatting, once the kids got used to it, we had kids uh, – these are high school kids that were doing the 100-pound dumbbell with six chains on top of it draped over that's 232 pounds for sets of 10. Wow. Squat. Uh, we had kids do a 100-pound dumbbell squat for 50 straight reps. Uh, all of our freshmen, in order to graduate, you know, to strength train, they have to do 50 pounds for 50 straight reps, and they all do it. Uh, so, uh, but what ends up happening is now we are, this is our seventh game tomorrow, and we... Yesterday or yesterday? Yeah, yeah. 
yesterday we trained the trap bar heavier than we ever have in the eight. Yeah. So we're able to maintain our strength, which is positive during the season because this is when typically, you know, the football season is a long season. It's a lot of battering and you start getting tired and your body starts getting run down. Well, now that our kids are stronger now than they were when we started the season. And uh, that's a huge, huge thing going, you know, when you walk out in the field, you know that you're stronger than the next guy. Uh, that is- yeah, absolutely. For uh, confidence, yeah. especially. So, now, with the quick question, with the uh, the dumbbell squats, how are they holding the dumbbell? Uh, like a goblet, I guess. You know, you hold it in your... Okay, so up by the chest. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, the other th- good thing about that is we can dumbbell squat during the season, still get the hip mobility working, and it doesn't really tax the legs. Because, you know, how heavy, you know, even if you're going to the extreme by hanging chains off, that's still just 230 pounds. It's not like you're putting 400 pounds in your back. And we really did that because of the hamstring work. Uh, we cut out because your hamstring gets so tired from all the running. So this was a big, big, big uh, deal to me was cutting out the squat because the squat is usually the, the foundation of most athletes training. And so it, it really, I hemmed and hawed over this for months. Like, you know, should I do this? Should I do this? And I finally said, fuck it. You know, what's the worst that can happen? You know, we won three games last year. Anything we do now is going to be, you know, <laughs> it's going to go yeah. up. So, uh, and so far it's been great. So our heavy trap bar days on Monday, uh, Wednesday is, uh, bench work and dumbbell squat. We do movement work every day. We do gymnastic stuff every day. And then on Saturdays after the game, we do all, uh, just really easy mobility work and, you know, movement stuff. And uh, that's it. So, brilliant. Yeah, we got a trap bar in in our station. Funny enough, and for everyone listening who doesn't know what that is, it's like a, a hexagon bar with with handles, and you stand inside yes. it. So when you're deadlifting, you're holding with your arms by your side. Which I think, especially for for people that aren't familiar with the deadlift movement, I think it's a great first go to before you transition to a straight yeah. bar. Yeah, and you know, I you hear all the time from powerlifting purists that the it's not a deadlift. Well, these kids aren't powerlifters either. Uh, so I don't really, I will use, you know, the, the best tool that I can, the most efficient tool that I can. And from my point of view, I have to, there's one guy for 60 people. Like I have to make the coaching easy because I, you know, it's one thing to be one-on-one with someone. It's another thing that you got 60 kids, you got, you know, a million different training levels and you got to coach them all. And, and you have, you know, and so you have to be very efficient with that too. You know, what's the easiest thing that we can, uh, allows the kids to get the most out of it without, you know, me giving individual, because if I spend 20 minutes with one kid, <clears throat> then what about the other kids? You know, it just doesn't work very well. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree a hundred percent. Now I just want to, uh, underline the four exercises that you have in the five, three, one, um, that I've been doing. So it's the, the military press, which is a standing shoulder press, the uh, the deadlift, which I actually have been using the trap bar for the programming for you, um, and then we've got the bench press and then the squat. Yes. Um, so very very simple movements, and then you've got four week cycle where it's uh, just three sets of of different percentages, and then you've got a deload set a deload week in the last week. Is that yeah? Correct? We've changed. You know, there's now there's a couple variations. We usually go six weeks and then a full deload. Uh, 
and that that has changed a little bit. Um, but what we do is, um, as a coach, things are a little bit different because, and plus I'm, <clears throat> like I said, I use indicators and, uh, we will put a D load wherever I think I, we need it. And we'll, you know, that is, uh, just something you have to kind of have the experience to do. Um, and then we do our D loads a little differently. Um, but the same concepts basically apply. Um, but uh, we have every <clears throat> on the third week. That's our test week, and I don't. We don't test like we don't one RM. We just make sure that they're able to hit five strong reps with their last set. Okay, if they can do that, they've earned the right to move on to the next phase uh, where they increase their weights. If they don't, we back them off and we build them back up. Um, which gets people all frustrated. Like, why didn't, you know, you can't go up. Strength is not linear at a micro level. Like if I looked at my strength training from the time I was 13 to the time I was 30. Okay. And if we took a big macro look at it, right. It'd be a straight line going up. Right. Does that make sense? Like on a bar graph, it looked like a hill. Now, if we focused in really close, there'd be all these dips and dives. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. It so does. what you know what ends up happening is some of the you know I tell the kids you have to train at the weights that are appropriate for your strength level. That means you do what's on the fuck because each kid's got their own paper. Every kid's got their own workout. I you know that's I, I don't know how much paper I've gone through <laughs> since I've done this. <laughs> anyway, so you know I'll give you an example. We had a kid who's uh, his bench plateaued after about six or I don't know six or eight months or something. So we backed him back down, and I think his at the top he did, I think, 215 for four, and he couldn't get his fifth rep. So we backed him off a couple cycles, and he ended up, after he came back around to 215, he did it for eight. That's So the problem is I think a lot of people is they, they push too hard with stuff that they're not supposed to do. Does that make sense? And I tell the kids over and over again, is on that third week, I check everyone's sets and make sure that they can hit five strong reps there. If not, when we back them down, the kids get frustrated in the beginning because they just want to be like their friends and, you know, keep on training and stuff like that and use heavy weights. But I tell them all the time, it's not about the train effect isn't about how much weight you lift. It's about the it's a package deal with everything that you do. And every, your, your weight has to be and your volume. Everything has to be appropriate for what you are at that time. And as an example, here's a, the best example of some of the what I believe to be some of the stuff that kind of it's I just don't think it's right is a lot of times people say when you begin a training program and you periodize it and look at it, you always do a ton of high volume work at the beginning. Right. And then you, you taper off. That's just the classic model. Well, when I was in college, I remember just sitting around thinking about this. And I'm like, why would I do the most amount of work when I'm least prepared? And that's at the beginning. Does that make sense? No, it does. So, completely. Well, it doesn't yeah, make sense. Yeah. Point. And I was like, yeah. you know, I was just fucking baffled at this. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, well, that's when I'm the least in shape. So I asked a guy who's now, uh, I'm not going to name drop, but let's just put it this way. He's been on ESPN a shitload of times because of the athletes he trains. It's the best way I'll put it. So I, 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 I happen to know him, and I asked him, and he said, you're exactly right. He calls me Jimmy. 
You're exactly right, Jimmy. And so what we ended up doing is the, the first three or six weeks, it depends on the – this pertains to kids that already know how to lift. Okay, this is not a true beginner. Is we have a very moderate volume, okay? Because I'm not going to put your kid in the fucking fire, you know, because uh, it's the same thing with running. I'll give you an example. This is common in college football. You have the you know off season, then you have your full season, and then you take a couple of weeks off, and then come January they have what's known as morning conditioning. Okay, and morning conditioning is nothing more than beating the shit out of kids. It is fucking horrible. Everyone pukes. It's just that's just the tradition. Okay. Well, when we started running, we started running very early. We started running in March, and the kids were all worried. I'm like, trust me, you're not gonna. I'm not gonna put you make you throw up when like, I'm not going to prove that to you that you're out of shape because you're fucking out of shape. You know it. I know it. So what's the point of throwing all that shit at the kids, making them sore and tired when it doesn't do you any good. So we just, and every single day, and I swear to God, this is true. The coaches come up to me. He's like, I can't believe how little running we do and how little running we did. And the kids are in phenomenal shape, phenomenal shape the best shape the kids have ever been in. And it's the same thing as I talked earlier about my parents is we just ran earlier and we just kept things normal. And it's about develop, uh, getting interest, right? You're just, you're just accumulating wealth um, over time. Does that make sense to you? So all the running that we did in March, and I, I guess another way I you know, helped come here, but we never ran them to death ever. I always made sure that kids, as soon as there was a drop off, we backed off a little bit, you know, during the session, stuff like that. It got to the point, and I, if I told you how little we did, you would be amazed. I think for the first three weeks, we ran, I think, 1200s or something, 1000s. That's it. Maybe 16 at the most, and at their own fucking pace. I said, just don't jog. I want you to run. What about rest periods? They're on your own. Just run. It got to the point where we were able to run for 37 minutes straight of not just running, but of calisthenics between the runnings. And the kids never got like throw up or just like, you know, anything like that. And so we just built it up over time. Now, is another example is let's say we threw a shit ton of running at the kids early on. What do you think is going to happen to their strength training? It's going to diminish. So everything has to be in balance. So uh, anyway, to make a long story short, the best way to always tell the kids is we don't cram for tests around here. We study a little bit every day, okay? And we little bit every day pays off in the end. So by the time the game rolls around, they feel okay. They don't have to kill themselves the week prior to get in shape. We're already in shape. We're good. Uh, and, you know, when the kids start asking questions, like sometimes the kids are like, Coach, the weights are really light. I'm like, they're not supposed to be light. They're not supposed to kill you. And I tell them, we climb a ladder, and the ladder is like 100, 100 rungs up, right? My goal every day is to get you up one more rung. That's it. As soon as I make you puke or make you so sore you don't want to train, I knock you out right off the ladder. Not down one rung, off the entire ladder. And that does no one any good. So... I call it social media training. We don't do social media training here where they, you know, you'll see a guy training and you'll say, Oh shit, that's, you know, he's fucking going crazy. Right. And like, Oh man, that's, that's just a snapshot of what he did that day. It's not about the 12 weeks or 16 weeks or the 20 years he's had prior. 
and you know, I tell I told the coach this other day. I said I guarantee one hundred percent that every team that we will play have trained harder on one day than we ever have, but we train longer for a longer period of time than anyone else has. I guarantee it because we started two weeks after the season and the kids were incredibly committed. All the really, I'm not. I don't want to take that much credit because the kids showed up and did the work. All I did was sit around, you know, and drink Mountain Dew. That's all I did. And the kids were on track. I just heard them, you know, herded them where they needed to go. But the real testament is the kids just coming in and, you know, they went on blind faith with me too. You know, here's a new guy coming in. I'm just trying to help out. And they just bought in hook, line and sinker. Some of them from the get go. Some of them took a little bit of time, but, uh, you know, the kids did a tremendous amount of work and, you know as well as I do, it's easy to train hard for a week. It's hard to be consistent for a year or two years or three years or whatever. So, you know. Yeah, well, I think you hit you hit the nail on the head. Another point that I really, uh, A, want to drive home regardless, but B, ironically, we talked about this a lot in my last interview um, last week with a guy called Casper uh, van der Mulen, who's a... Uh, uh, kind of like a mental coach breathing um all that kind of stuff but it's the same thing he was like if you just do the practice for a few minutes every day after a while it's going to become habit and it's, it's like you're talking about you know if you go for a run and I, I used this example with him last time i used to go for a run and redline and then you know be miserable instead of the, take it down 20 percent, and then all of a sudden i'm jogging through the the forest going wow look you know this is beautiful and feeling every breath that's going in my lungs and feeling the sun on my face. And it's only a small percentage less, but that's the difference between not wanting to run again and then wanting to run. There's also the difference between you training the next day. And uh, so um, that's why like when we run, like when we do our, our serious running, once we get you know in fairly good shape, I tell the kids no more than 80%. That's it. Just, you know, I want you to run hard, but don't, don't strain. And, uh, we had all the linemen do six. This was, we didn't test. I didn't have any conditioning tests because I think any kind of testing is kind of dumb. It just wastes a day of training. But as part of our workout, uh, we did, the kids did 16 100s, the linemen, and they finished under 16 seconds. All of them did. And that was just part of their training. Now, that's what they call the old Miami mile. That's what the University of Miami, I think, used to do. And the kids all did it. And these were, you know, there's some 300-pound kids in there uh, that ran that. And they were fine. And uh, that wasn't their uh, – but to understand, we never ran that – it's just consistent work pays off in the end. And the funny thing about consistent work is it pays off quicker than you think. You don't need to spend it – it's not going to take a year to get better. You'll get quicker, faster, because you're able to recover better, you know. And what's funny is – at this point in time, even though these are high school kids and everyone thinks high school kids can recover from anything, well, that's a bunch of bullshit. That is a fucking pipe dream made up by a bunch of retards. Kids, especially athletes, man, there's a lot of demands on them. And physically, especially once you start playing a sport, uh, it's easy to coach from a sideline, you know, when you're not running, when you're not getting your head pounded in and your head scrambled. Uh, so our major thing is even within practice, like I work with the coach, we uh, have plans for what the amount of reps the kids get. And at this point of time, you know, we're seven games in, it's all about fatigue management. 
because uh, that we know the kids will show up and beat the shit out of the other team. Like they've proven that. So we don't need to beat the shit out of them during practice. So at this point in time, it becomes about restoration and fatigue management. And I talk about being efficient in the weight room. The coaches have to be super efficient in their coaching. So that doesn't require 30 reps of the, some kid running a play to get it. So he gets it in a couple times and he understands why he does it. And that, that is becoming a better coach is becoming a more efficient coach. So now we can manage fatigue easier. And I have indicators. I have weight room indicators. I have <clears throat> on the field indicators that I look for in all the kids. And after uh, we train and after we do our warmups and stuff, I go to the coach and I tell him exactly what I think. And for the most part, you know, he's 100% on board. Yeah. I just want to kind of pull that into the, the fire and police as well is if you're not going to that max, you're not killing yourself, then if you, you know, like the fire station, for example, we're working out and then we might get a call halfway through the workout. Um, yeah, what are you going to yeah, do you're, if you're fucking in a bucket? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you can, yeah, as you said, you can get to that 80% every single shift and then, you know, six months from now, be so much stronger and, you know, not adding to that stress of the nervous system that we already have from the sleep deprivation and the, the alarm state that we're in anyway. Yes. And, uh, but uh, it's, it becomes, it's funny because as you get better and better at this, uh, it's just I laugh because, you know, I, I, James, when I tell you that there's, there's, there's people that studied probably more than I did. And there's people that are way better at what I do, but my obsessive, I, I don't know if I have some kind of obsessive behavior, but this is all this in heavy metal is all I think about. That's it. Like I'm, and so even from, you know, let's, I, I'll give you an example. I read some guy said, Hey, I've been doing this for five years, you know, come contact me for training. And I'm not downplaying this. So just understand this. I guess I am a little bit, I'm not going to name names. And I was like, when I did this for five years, I guarantee within those five years, I did more work than this guy did as far as in the weight room and obsessive studying. Okay. I was only 18. I didn't know shit when I was 18. Now. Okay. Does that make sense? Cause I'm like, God, I, Thank God I'm not 18-year-old Jim trying to train these kids because I'd be a fucking nightmare. Now, every time that I – like, it took me two years to write the Forever book because of all the research and all the little stupid shit I had to figure out. And it's just very – but every time I got – in it, I think there's maybe a two- or three-year gap between my last book. Every time I write something, I just give it all – I just throw it up all on the paper and hopefully, you know. And I always think, well, where am I going to go from here? And – I always get a little nervous. And then before you know it, if you just stick with, uh, how do I put this? If you just work and process and just keep doing and, and trying to evolve the, the changes that happen to you, I'm not talking about physical change. I'm talking about thinking about stuff is absolutely remarkable because I'm farther along now than I was when the book was released. Uh, as far as understanding stuff. And it's just this awesome process of never, it's, it's knowing, it's uh, believing in something and then evolving within that context. And uh, so I don't know how many people will listen to this that are actually in the industry, but uh, I don't, I don't know what your target demographic is. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty broad spectrum now. So we have everything from, you know, fire and police all the way through to trainers and yogis and all kinds of different people so. yeah and it's it's important that that people understand that uh it's the process of trying to figure out problems that's the most important 
and not, don't get caught up and try. I don't know how to put this the right way. It's, if you do the work, things will evolve naturally, I guess is the best way to say it. And you'll, you'll become better. And as the more that I get into this and you start understanding stuff a little bit better, you, you realize like, holy shit, was I wrong about this? Or my God, things haven't changed in a hundred years. You know, there's a book. I have it somewhere in my library here written by George Hackenschmidt, who the hack squat was named after, you know, the original barbell behind the back deadlift. Yep. And I think it was written like in the early 1900s, like 1912. If you read that book, you will fucking laugh your ass off because 99% of what he's saying still holds true today. Like everything, like if, if you only had that book to go by, you'd be fucking awesome. Well, that's what I found. That's why I did this, you know, started this whole thing was, was deconstructing, you know, as, as you and I are pretty much the same age, when we were young, weight training, you know, unless you were, had a mentor that was open-minded like yours, weight training was going into the, the gym with all the machines and doing your pec deck and your preacher curls. And then your nutrition was, oh, you know, fat is a devil. So you want to have boatloads of pasta, you know, and, and then you, you kind of get to this point now and all those fellow 40-year-olds are on meds for God knows what and morbidly obese. And you're like, okay, this clearly wasn't the right advice because... None of this stuff's working. And as a paramedic, I you know stick tubes down people's throats and see that none of this stuff works. So when it comes back to the basics, uh, kind of like this conversation we're having right now, you realize that you know really picking something up, putting it down, carrying it, dragging it, pushing it, eating things out the ground the way it grew, is pretty pretty basic when you when you take a step back. And I think you have to allow yourself. To, to put your hands up and say, all right, you got me. I was fooled. Yeah. But it's okay to, you know, own that mistake and then and then look for, you know, w- what have you learned and what do you think are, are the right things now in 2017? Yeah, it's, it's almost like uh, the best way I try and kind of look about it is we kind of know what works. We just don't know the exact ingredients all the time. And uh, now there's always, there's always going to be big breakthroughs coming you know, here and there. Uh, but I always, you know, when I was a kid, uh, our offensive line coach when I was in high school was a huge Nebraska Huskers fan. Now, I don't know if you know anything about American football, but that's where strength training for sports started outside of track and field. Track and field were squatting, benching, deadlifting in the 50s. OK, they were 40 years ahead of everyone else with training was the shot and discus guys uh, in, in America and overseas. But anyway, the, the birth of strength and conditioning as we know it for athletes birthed itself at Nebraska with Boyd Epley. And that's an awesome story. I'm not going to get into it, but if anyone's interested, read up on Boyd Epley. And so anyway, uh, Mr. Golden, Jim Golden was his name. Uh, he's an offensive line coach at uh, Wheeling High School when I was there. He was a huge Nebraska fan. He'd always go to the, Nebra- the Nebraska Huskers would have a big uh, football camp for high school coaches and stuff, and he would go there and learn and stuff. And he got hold of an old Nebraska Huskers uh, Husker Power tape, and it was Boyd Epley training his athletes and uh, showing what they did and why they did and stuff like that. And this, I got this when I was a freshman or sophomore in high school. Now, what's funny is their main lifts back in the day were the bench, the squat, and the hand clean, and then they would fill it in with accessories. Now, if you, well, you don't really, I don't know how much you know about Nebraska football. Nebraska football in the 80s and 90s pretty much steamrolled everyone. I mean, everyone. And over the years, uh, things got a little more complicated with strength training, right? And I think the rationale was for years, the strength coach was kind of known as the dummy. What did he know? And I think over the years, 
the profession try to make themselves smarter than they were or sound smarter or you know include all these fancy new things because make that prove to the ADs and the coaches that they were onto something different. But back in the day, Nebraska trained very basic. They ran, they lifted heavy weights, and they got bigger muscles. And, you know, they always stretched and did agility work. And those teams back in the 80s and 90s were fucking tanks. Everyone was a tank. And, you know, there's a million reasons why, I'm sure, other than just strength training. But not millions, but there's probably other reasons why. But if you look back at those old tapes, man, those guys just got strong and they were very fast and explosive, and they weren't doing anything revolutionary as far as we know today. Back then it was. And, uh, you know, things have obviously changed in Nebraska over the years. It's unfortunate. But, uh, you know, I talked to Dave Tate about this one time. It's like, you know, maybe you have to evolve, but don't evolve when – don't change for the sake of change, I guess, is the best way to put it. Sometimes the same things, you know, hold true. Uh, now the game has changed a little bit. However, uh, you still need to be big. You still need to be fast. You still need to be strong. You still need to be agile, you know, powerful, stuff like that. And I think sometimes we, we evolve or change for the sake of it. Um, and you see it in this profession all the time, and it's unfortunate. Um, but uh, that's one thing I've always tried to, you know, I have always keep the principles in mind and I always have to keep an anchor around my waist to say, is this really what's needed? I mean, do we really, like I, you know, I had, uh, when I first started helping out, the co- the kids would ask me all these questions and I'd say, well, can you do 20 chin-ups? And they're like, no. And I'm like, why the fuck do you need to do this then? And they get all depressed. I'm like, can you run a six minute <laughs> mile? No. Well, then why do you need to do this? Can you squat uh, perfectly 400 pounds? No. Well, then what do you you see what I'm saying? And uh, even with uh, when I first started, you know, the head coach would ask me questions and stuff. I'm like, dude, the kids can't do push-ups. Don't worry about it. You know, we we have to, you know, we got to have some kind of basic plan and uh, to get these kids, you know, just in general shape. And I think uh, I'm not. Don't take that always literally, but the the fact is sometimes you gotta back up a little bit and uh, understand that, uh, you know, let's say I have a firefighter come in who can't, uh, and I've had this happen, they can't even do a full squat with their body weight. Like, what do you really need them to do? You know, uh, do you need some fancy programming? They just need some basic work. And, yeah, uh, exactly. And you certainly don't want to be adding load if they can't even move with their yeah, own body weight. And it doesn't need this fancy program either. Just get them doing some calisthenics and get them moving every day. And uh, we see it with eighth graders all the time. I mean, the problem with eighth graders is, uh, you know, whether they're about 13 or 14 years old, is the discrepancy between one and another guy is going to be huge. We've got kids who can deadlift 400 pounds, uh, three, you know, 350, 400 pounds is as Eighth graders, just fucking. Really? Yeah, and then we have kids who literally can't pick up a trap bar, and that's and that's a huge difference, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so, exactly. Especially on the field, one's gonna get yeah, killed. One guy's just like uh, <laughs> playing varsity and just knocking guys over. The other guy's like his pants don't even go around him. You know, they're supposed to be tight and they're they're hanging off like clown pants. That sounds like me when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, that really forced me to understand fitness uh, at a more basic level is because, you know, for years and years you're working with 
uh, you know, higher tier, so to speak, athletes or people who have backgrounds and you forget like, holy shit. Uh, you know, while it's nice to be able to squat these kids, these kids, you know, we can't do it. Kids can't do a push up. Like, what do you expect them to do? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And we see that a lot in, in the, the CrossFit gym, you know, people walk through and again, the tendency is, and our gym has, has again, evolved very, very well to the point now where people are very, um, uh, cognizant of of not adding load and getting people to really scale movements, but you know they they can't do a a good air squat and they're wanting to learn a snatch. Yeah. It's like okay, well we need we need to just you know you're going to hurt yourself. I mean this is very very simply put. If you have that weight all the way from your center of gravity, you're going to snap in two. So why don't we work on just you know putting your butt down by your heels first, and then we'll work on on adding load once you get that down. Uh, you know the big things I get kids to do is body weight movements. Once they can do some of that very basic body weight stuff and learn how to jump and land, um, and then we start with the body weight squats and dumbbell squats and stuff like that, then the changes, if you're patient enough for six weeks and really just pound the, the, the basics home, uh, with the sophomores now, with, when they were freshmen last year, for six weeks all we did was dumbbell squats and push-ups forever. And the kids were getting frustrated. And I'm like, wow, well, too bad, you know suck it up kids and now they are they are absolute machines could be trained right through the season uh because they weren't really playing much obviously they're freshmen absolutely now, now i wanted to, to just touch on one thing about five through five three one and then and then you know get on with some wrap-up questions so we can let you go you've been extremely generous with your time um but a, a area that i've really loved about the five three one is i mean the lifts are, are great and, and i'm noticing you know the exact uh increase that i should but the accessory work is forcing me weekly to do strict movements and I, i'm changing it up a little bit i'm doing the 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 uh, pull-ups and dips for example i'm doing on gymnastic rings and and just uh giving myself some variety but i'm finding that that is is you know making a huge difference in my body even if i wasn't doing the actual main lift that that was programmed as well so um you know what was the 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 thinking behind that did you see that that was lacking in those movements and it was important to add the accessory work as uh, well uh you mean the assistance work uh, sorry, yes, the assistance work. Well, the the big thing that uh, changed uh, was, one, I needed a way to quantify it, okay? Because I'll give you an example. If you're doing boring but big, which is the main lift, and then you do uh, five sets of ten with that same main lift after the main work. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, if you're doing that, <clears throat> you can't do the same assistance <clears throat> as if you just did the main work in a PR set. Uh, because you did so much supplemental volume, so we needed something to uh, something has to give because we do more volume with the main work. Now we have to do less assistance. Okay, but I needed a way to quantify all that, so that took a lot, lot of time. And so what ended up that was just me going through the process of thinking. But the big thing was if you did, for example, boring but big, nine times out of ten you're going to get much bigger um, and stronger, uh, especially for you know. Uh, beginner or intermediate because it's just you're there's a lot of work okay a lot of squats a lot of deadlifts a lot of benches a lot of presses um and what ended up happening was you start working with kids and younger population and you realize it'd be great to look you know squat all this stuff but they have no muscle mass uh and that's where 
a lot of the assistance work came in was uh, was to develop muscle mass, and uh, so that became a big driving force. You know, I always, you know, we talk about uh, building armor for the for football players. You know, the the thing is, I always say we athlete the lower and body build the upper, uh, because the kids lack so much muscle mass in their upper body, and the muscle mass generally has to be put on before we gain strength. Um, now there's always a few guys out there who, you know, 160 pounds and bench 400 and people use them as examples. But for the most part, if you're going to have a strong upper body, you're going to have a big upper body as far as muscular wise. Okay. So I needed to find a way to, un- to, instead of saying, I oh, just do some assistance work and you know, here's some ideas to say, well, when you do this type of main lift and supplemental work, then you have to do this. And, uh, it ended up. You know, for years and years, I worked with people that were generally fairly strong. And then you start working with people who aren't strong and big, and you realize, holy shit, like things have to change a little bit. So that just became a process of me and broadening my uh, scope and working with different people. Uh, you know, if, if all you do is hang around people who who can do push-ups till they're blue in the face, uh, you know, you're training ideas and, and perspective change then you come with a kid who can't even fucking jump on a 16 inch box that's a whole nother realm of training and then you realize that there's a huge amount of a population that can't do some basic stuff like that and uh so that that just became that kind of came as far i mean i've always been fans of you know the the dips and the chin-ups and the rows and stuff like that but understanding how to put them into a total training package rather than just say do some was really just a result of one, me working with different people and B, just becoming better at programming and understanding the program and understanding the give and take. You, know, you do a lot of this, you do a little of this. You do a little less of this, you can do more of that. Just I'm making hand motions, by the way. <laughs> Which, <laughs> if there was a video component, you'd yeah, be to see it. Yeah, it would really, yeah, <laughs> it's really bad fucking radio right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we're going to transition to a few uh, short questions then. Um, so the first one, I know you, you, uh, you mentioned that you were in a band. So what is the name of your band? Oh, uh, it is called Locust Whip, which I don't even know what it fucking means. We just kind of uh, started, you know, chose a name. And uh, I actually talked to the drummer yesterday. And when I, as a kid, I played a bunch of concerts you know when in my old band they weren't we weren't very good but you know as a, things changed over the years like we used to have battle the bands uh twice a year at school we could play this we could play in our uh during lunch periods we would get those lunch periods off uh several couple times and play for the school uh we'd have talent contests there are different communities uh part of our old community would have you know at the jewish community center they'd have the battle of the bands and stuff like that uh, but I haven't played live in forever, so we want to play one live show in 2018. I think it'd be awesome. Uh, so, um, you know, that's one of my bucket list things is to – because I – in a live setting, I would play guitar and sing. Uh, on the record stuff that we do, we record a bunch of stuff. I do the, the uh, you know, vocals, guitar, and bass, and I do all the sound effects, noises, and stuff that we put in to add ambiance, so to speak. Uh, so I think I, I've always played drums, uh, in my other, my other teenage band, which again, we weren't terribly good. Uh, so to be up front and, 
to sing while I play guitar is going to be a totally different experience. So I'm excited. You know, the, the, the thing that, you know, as, as you get older, uh, you get more mature and stuff like that, but I still think you need that teenage drive that you had. And I think I've kind of had that, uh, with lifting and, and music. And, uh, I still have that, uh, that love of just doing stuff, you know, I have never lost that as I've gotten older. I'm still a kid on some things at heart. So we have a couple, uh, we released a new song, I don't know, maybe a month ago. We've got, uh, three new songs. I think we recorded that I have to dub all the other, you know, the vocals and stuff like that. that We already recorded. And, uh, it's just a, you know, obviously, uh, we're, you know, we're not going to, uh, make any money, but it's something I love to do. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's funny, people always say, follow your passion, right? And the problem is, is sometimes the, my passion doesn't meet <laughs> talent. I could never make money off music, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy it, uh, warts and all. So, uh, you know, the other thing is, I don't know if this makes sense. I, I always hated being a critic. I think being a critic is the fucking pussiest job in the world. I really do. I think uh, just standing on the sidelines, I'd rather uh, someone go out and do something and and not be very good, but at least they did it. And I think that takes tremendous amount of balls uh, to do it. So, you know, I'm a big fan of music and I've listened to a shit ton of music. Uh, every day I'm always surrounded by music. And, you know, it's easy for a band, you know, you hear a band play like, oh, these guys suck. It's like, well, you know, what did you do? Like, where's your band? And uh, I just didn't, I don't think that's fair. Um, you know, uh, so I just taught myself how to do some of this stuff, and I just love it. And uh, I don't do it for anyone but myself and uh, the, the drummer I work with, who's amazing, Joey. Uh, it's just something to do, you know, and uh, I don't, I don't want to lose that part of me. And I can't because it's just, I'd go fucking crazy, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, I guess that it's the same thing that you said with your parents, you know, I mean, if you wake up every day and you want to play and you want to, you know, fight and you want to play music yeah. and, you know, go do handstands or whatever the hell it is, then that's still that yeah. child and you're probably still going to be doing yeah. it, you know, well into your uh, 80s and 90s. Yeah. I so. mean, uh, yeah, the Rolling Stones are still doing it, right? God, they got to be. Oh, yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> but... Uh... I, I sure I saw wires behind one of their heads the other day, though. I don't think they. I think they've been uh, reanimated. <laughs> well, I don't know how uh, anyone can do any more drugs because uh, I think Keith Richards did them all. I mean, that guy. Yeah. He's like Lemmy from Motorhead. I'm like, how is there any meth left ever? <laughs> yeah, well, the Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit! I mean, those guys. They have a. Their biology is so insane. You know, some people take a snort of coke and they die. You know, these guys. <laughs> Just fucking mainline everything and just like, ah, oh, we'll see what happens. So yeah, it's funny. I saw Ozzy Osbourne in Japan. Uh, God, was it two thousand one? And it was right when he was being treated for, you know, the I guess the effects. Yeah, where they had him uber over medicated. <laughs> and I never never forget. He played. Didn't even make it now. I think he played like fifty four minutes or something. And at the end, he goes, <laughs> "All right, thanks for coming, and make sure you drive home safely." And I'm like. That's the queen of, I mean, the king of darkness right there telling us the driving safety tips. <laughs> you know what's even... That's when you... Yeah, know. It's, it cracks me up because when I was a kid, Ozzy Osbourne was the devil. You know, Black Sabbath. Remember Ozzy took the bite off the bat? 
and everyone hated him. He was the worst thing ever. And then you go to any major sporting event, and everyone plays crazy train in Iron Man. And, uh, oh, what a great guy, you know, how awesome. And it's just so funny over the years, you see the, you know, same with Elvis. Elvis was the most hated man alive uh, in the 50s and stuff, in the 60s. And then uh, nowadays, he's like a national treasure. You know, he's, his face is on a fucking stamp. Uh, mm-hmm. you, can, uh, you can get him to marry you in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but whatever. Uh I don't know. Even one of the kids came up to me yesterday. He's like, man, I listen to Crazy Train every single day. I'm like, man, that would have gotten you uh, sent to the principal's office uh, 30 years ago. Yeah, that's crazy. Because, again, it's just a song. I mean, his little, uh, mm-hmm. you know, his dramatizations of things were yeah. uh, a little extreme. But compared to the stuff you see now, compared to the bloody video games now, it's absolutely oh, tame. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. all right. So just quickly, is your music available yep. online? Can people find it on YouTube? Yeah. Or- yeah, we do. I uh, just upload it to YouTube and stuff. I, I think we're going to release, and I know this shows my age, I want to release a CD because I am I buy everything still physical. I think it's, you know, I'd like to have a physical copy with artwork and lyrics and stuff like that. I know it shows my age, but I buy records and CDs still to this day. Uh, and even if we just do a short run of 250 CDs, uh, that's something we want to do. And uh, we actually went into the studio last year and recorded, I think, four songs, three which I think we're going to use. And then I have a 12-track in my basement with uh, mics and stuff that we record everything else down here. And it doesn't sound pretty, but our music isn't pretty, so we don't need you know some fancy computer fucking program. We record everything live. We don't you know do any uh, – I mean, I dub – Dub the bass over everything and the vocals, but I mean everything is from start to finish us playing live. Which, you know, to the people that don't understand, most people bands play in snippets and then they just piece everything together. They just punch in. So uh, we play everything. So sometimes we may have to play a song eight fucking times, which is very frustrating, especially when the song's like seven minutes long. Uh, or you know, you're like, you screw it, it up, screw on, it up on six minutes and fifty seconds. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you think about it, like the first Black Sabbath album was recorded, everyone live except for the uh, I think they dubbed the vocals and dubbed the guitar solos, but everything else was live, and they recorded it in like two days, and it still stands up today. And uh, and so you know, I like the warts and uh, you know, like oh, he kind of screwed up here. It's like, well, yeah, that's how it goes. Sometimes people fuck up, so big deal. Like. Not every drum hit and string needs to be perfect, and I don't think it should be. You know, the music I like should be ugly, and uh, I'm not looking for perfection. Absolutely. All right, so another quick question. Um, if Is there a book that you recommend to people? It doesn't have to be about what we talked about today, but... Oh, boy. Uh, I would say the by far the best thing I read is uh, an author named James Elroy who uh, he wrote the book L.A. Confidential, which was released into a movie, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago or something. Uh, it was a big-time Hollywood movie, but his writings are by far the – he is like every – even though he writes uh, prose, it's like every line is pure poetry. It's the best writer I've ever seen in my life. Uh, in fact, I haven't even read all his books. I've got a couple books that I've saved so I don't waste them. <laughs> you know, I don't want to blow my load, so to speak, so – uh, if you could read one author, I would recommend James Elroy. I mean, it's just uh, every line is like a chainsaw to the to the stomach. It's just beautiful, poetic, hard nosed, uh, 
noir fiction, I guess is the best way to say it. And, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of big cities. I don't like New York or L.A. or Chicago or anything like that. But it's all most of his stuff takes place in like uh, the 50s and 60s in L.A. And uh, it's got that kind of, uh, you know, guys wearing suits, you know, being uh, no one's ever a good guy or bad guy. Everyone's just kind of in the gray area, you know. (laughs) And uh, it's just really fun stuff. So uh, it's a good, and I recommend, you know, I get asked a lot, like, you know, what do you read and stuff? And I said, I, you should read whatever you want to read. I don't think it's terribly important what you read. It's more that you read because I think everything in our life right now is being just shoved down our throats. We never have to think. And with reading, you have to formulate the story and the, I, the images in your head. I think that's a huge difference between being just uh, sitting on the TV, you know, watching TV where you really have to do no work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I tell my son this exactly the same thing. I'm like, you sit and watch a movie that you don't have to imagine even what the characters look like because no. it's already been cast. But when you sit down and, you know, out in wherever you are and you open a book, you have to imagine every single part. Yeah. And it's, it is, and people argue, oh, well, if you look at someone reading a book, they got the same facial expressions. Like, no, they haven't. Their, their brain is working yeah. so much more. Yeah, you, you put on a, uh, you know, one of those uh, electrode things that, uh, you know, I don't know, the brain has got to be, in, yeah, it's got to be insane. And uh, it's always fun, too, when you read a book and you see the movie. You're like, that's not what he fucking looks like. Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, especially when they make it badly. Have you ever read yeah. that book, The Beach, by uh, Alex Garland, I think the author's name was? Yes. And uh, they made you it know? with DiCaprio. Oh, yeah. They butchered that book. Butchered it. Yeah, not every book. Uh, even L.A. Confidential, even though it was a tremendous movie and that they had great actors, you know, you can't, not everything translates uh, from uh, print to, to screen. And I get it because you, you know, I talked to my wife the other day about this is, you know, because of reality TV, I think that just to preface this, everything in the world is like uh, succumbs to nature and nature always seeks one thing and that's balance or homeostasis. Does that make sense? Yes. Or, for example, when we had the high carbs in the 80s, what was the, what was the reaction? Low fat. When, well, the reaction was after the high carbs was the Atkins. Oh, you mean diabetes and well, the, the 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 reaction to that was no carbs, fucking carbs of the devil, right? Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, so everything gotcha. wants to balance itself out, and with the advent of reality TV, <laughs> which is the lowest form of fucking shit I've ever seen in my life, is <laughs> yep. now and it drove out most, you know, uh, most TV. Now the the response was now we have epic score- storytelling in the you know Breaking Bad, Dexter, uh, The Shield, um, you know all these different shows, right? So you, you basically have a backlash against all these shit TV shows, but some of the best TV in the world. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. That that makes so much sense because at one point, you know, even your bloody uh, Discovery Channel and Nat Geo yeah. went from the only place you could learn to, yeah. you know, watch, watching a bunch of people going in storage units. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell happened? But what ends up happening is was really funny. I talked to my wife about this yesterday is how limited a 90 minute or two hour movie is to tell a story when now you have seven seasons of uh, Walter White and uh, Jesse and Breaking Bad and you develop their characters and you can, there's so much richer and fuller and it's amazing. And then you were like, you yeah. watch a movie. It's like, well, it's only 90 minutes. Like, where are they going to get fucking done in 90 minutes? <laughs> like, yeah. 
And especially when they remake the damn movies over and oh, over again, yeah. you know? I mean, Blade Runner's coming out. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> you, know? Uh, uh, you know, it's like when they remade Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, to me, is probably one of the greatest movies ever made because it still holds up in 2017 as it did, I think, in 1984. I saw that movie in the theaters, uh, Ghostbusters, and I just I think it's still fucking funnier than shit. I think the performances are great. And they, it's one thing to remake a movie that's complete shit, you know, and then you remake Ghostbusters. Like, why would you make one of the greatest, funniest movies ever made with, you know, some of the three of the smartest comedians, you know, who are just perfect for their roles, uh, you know, and uh, it's got to obviously money has something to do with it. But you're like, are you that limited on ideas? You know, when you got guys and I, I think that most of the great writers went to these serialized TVs uh, shows like Breaking Bad and Dexter and stuff like that. Uh because they're able to tell the, the real good stories rather than just getting, you know, sh- shit shot down your throat for 90 minutes of visual effects and crap like that. So, yeah. But whatever. Well, it seems like some of the best movies now are, are the ones based on true stories as well. There's one called uh, Only the Brave that's coming out, and it's about the, the Granite Mountain hotshots. They were the, the 19 firemen that were killed uh, in a forest fire. But it's not just about that one event. It's about their whole the whole uh, evolution of the crew and, and, you know, the impact they made on their community. You know, that's a, that's a story that's amazing. And you, you can tell it pretty well in 90 minutes. Oh. Um, and I think that we're seeing more of those come out now because it's, it's a story people actually want to hear. Yeah. Rather than uh, just, uh, you know, it's, I remember my oldest son wanted to see Transformers, one of the Transformers movies. And I don't know if I've ever been more bored in my life. I, I watched no one the other day. I hated uh, it. I had no <laughs> idea what was going on because I didn't care. And, uh, it's just this, you know, it's like, uh, it's like a girl with like fake tits and fake lips and all this makeup on. It's like, yeah, but once you kind of remove the shit, then what do we have left? And you have nothing. And, uh, but you know, I'm not, you know, people want to watch it. That's their right. I don't care. I'm not, uh, I just glad that there's not, you know, there's other stuff that I can choose from. So, Yeah. All right, well, speaking of that, because um, my next question is going to be that anyway, so is there a movie or documentary that you do recommend? Uh, documentaries get a little weird now, right? Because they're always got some weird political stance. Uh, and uh, you can frame anything you want. So I generally stay away from that stuff. Uh, mostly because I don't care about the issue they talk about. I'm like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> it sounds kind of apathetic in a way, but it's not. It's just I know they, the guy's got an agenda. Uh, like Michael Moore, who's just the, the turd of the world. And uh, anyway, uh, but I don't know. Like I, I would recommend, you know, obviously the the basic TV shows that everyone, you know, the, like I said before, the Breaking Bads, the Dexter, Dexters. There's a, I think it's Belgium. There's a show called Witnesses, and that's the English translation, which was fucking out of this world. It's in, you know, it's subtitled, but it was just an amazing kind of. Uh, they call it, like, I guess, Nordic Noir. Um, you have, uh, <clears throat> I think you can really, what is it? What is it? I watched uh, Harlan Corbin's The Five. I think that's his name uh, the other day. Um, so that I'm more, and then I guess the other, the movie that I would tell or the series of movies I tell everyone to watch are the Rift Tracks movies. Now, Rift Tracks started out years ago as Mystery Science Theater 3000, which was on uh, Comedy Central. And uh, all it is – now, Mystery Science Theater is a little different than Rift Tracks, but you'll get the point – is they would watch 
these one, two robots, you know, obviously fake robots, really. And one guy would sit in a movie theater and you'd see their, their silhouettes and they'd watch the worst movies they could find and just rip them apart. And the commentary is absolutely hilarious. And it's edgy, it's political, it's, there are all kinds of different literary references that you have to kind of look up sometimes. And then uh, that went on the Sci-Fi Channel for a number of years, and then it got uh, taken off. You know, they ran, it, ran its course, and then the, the originators of that, not the originators, but some of the guys from that Mystery Science Theory 3000 now do riff tracks, and you can get them on, I think, Amazon Prime or something, and you can actually download them from, your, from their site. And you watch a movie, and they comment with you. You know, comment on the the stuff that's going on, and is absolutely priceless. If I had to go to a movie, you know, go to a desert island, that's all I would watch is riff tracks. It's the f- okay. I'm gonna have to yeah, check if that you have out Amazon now. Prime, they do uh, some live shows that they 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 did. You know, they did uh, they do popular movies, they do really bad movies, but some of the stuff is absolutely priceless. Like I, I sat down with my dad one day. And I just put one on, and he's not prone to laughing or just just kind of the same stoic face all the time. And I just hear him belly laughing, like "Holy cow, what is this?" You know. So I'm a big fan. I was a, when I was a kid, I loved Mystery Science Theater 3000. I used to tape them all the time. That shows my age, right? I use a VHS tape and press record. Yeah, the same age as me, like I said. So. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I love riff tracks. That's one of my favorite things. Now, there's a new mystery science theater that came out on Netflix, and it's fucking horrible. Okay, I got through 20 minutes of it, and the new incantation is really not that good. It doesn't have the same kind of uh, flair as the original. So, but I'm just glad the original guys are still doing it. Not the the original original guys not doing it, but whatever. That's that's just talking points right now. So yeah, all right. So riff tracks. I will definitely check that out. uh, okay, one of my last questions. If Is there a guest that you would recommend to come on a show like this to talk to the first responders? Ooh, boy. Uh, boy. I guess if you can get Brad Arnett. Uh, Brad, he is uh, used to be the strength coach at the University of Minnesota, and then he moved to the University of Arizona. He was not there at Arizona when I was there, but I met him after I had got done playing there, if that makes sense. And uh, Brad is now runs his own private facility in Wisconsin, and I think he's got two locations now. It's A-R-N-E-T-T. Uh, he's one of those guys that keeps things in perspective, and he's always looking for different things, I guess, best way to say it. But he trains a shit ton of people uh, from all age ranges. And I'm talking from, you know, junior high all the way up to the best players in the NFL that have been there for since they've been freshmen. Let's put it that way. So since they've been kids, they've gone to him. So it's not like he's just hopped on to an NFL guy and, and uh, uh, you know, reap the rewards of the, you know, the natural talent, I guess, the best way to say it. So, uh, but Brad is kind of like the uh, the guy to go, as far as I'm concerned. And the thing is, he doesn't have he doesn't you know preach from the rafters. He doesn't have a huge, I don't think, any social media presence, if if at all, and uh, keeps to himself. But he is insanely knowledgeable about everything, um, and he's just a good dude. And that's you know, in this industry, the more that you're in it. You know, there's a lot of fly-by-night guys, and then there's a lot of guys who are kind of assholes. And uh, Brad has always 
uh, been great to me. And he's always, uh, I don't know how to put this. Uh, he's been in the, the trenches for a long time and uh, he's not afraid of saying what's true and not afraid of calling out the bullshit either. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for that. I will definitely yeah. uh, put him on the list there. Um, all right. One final question before uh, we just talk about where to find you in the books. Um, what do you do to decompress when you're not in the gym or coaching? Uh, well, there's obviously the music thing and I uh, love tooling around on my motorcycle. I love that. Even I still ride, even though I got smashed. Uh, I just like spending time with my wife and my kids. That's really, uh, besides the music stuff, you know, I'd like to be involved and I like to, you know, it's just a matter of listening and, and, uh, trying to be a good dad, a good uh, friend and husband to my wife, stuff like that. Uh, and I like being with my friends. I don't have, like, you probably, you know, you have people that you know, and then you have, like, your core group of friends. And uh, I just like being with them. And what's funny is I'm a very antisocial private person, and all my friends respect that, and they understand that. And uh, that's when, you know, one of my best friends is Matt Rhodes, who was at Elite FTS. I think he's still there, but he's a strength coach at uh, Moorhead State. I, we hang out a lot because he lives fairly close, you know, a couple hours away. And uh, he's friends with a guy, whatever, I'm not going to. And he's like, man, uh, I think you'd really get along with him, Jim, he said, because uh, you guys are exactly alike. I'm like, well, if he's like me, then he'll have no problem never meeting me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, list, I love sharing my time and my my life with people that I love and that's I just like having experiences even if it's just sitting around playing Legos or running around uh, the backyard or uh, you know playing board games with my wife it's uh, just try and enjoy my time because you never know you know my wife and I have endured some pretty shitty times together and it makes me appreciate all the little stuff and uh, like when I got hit on my motorcycle my wife was I think six or seven months pregnant Imagine getting that fucking phone call from the hospital. Oh, God, nah. Like your, you know, your husband almost died today. You know, you have to come out and get him. She's like, oh shit. Uh, so, but you know, that's just one of the many things that happened. And you just realize that uh, there's more to all this than uh, making money and uh, you know being famous or whatever else. You know, I don't have. Here's the best way to say: it. I have no issues with uh, my mortality. I don't want to die, but I don't have this strange urge to keep things living on in my name because I understand that I'm just one tiny drop in this ocean. So with that in mind, I just try to enjoy the time that I do have and uh, because it's can be all go away real quick. And uh, so I just, uh, I don't know. Let's put it this way. When I laid, I was laying in the ditch after I got hit by the car and I was, I thought I had, was paralyzed. Uh, everything fucking hurt. I thought I was going to die. And uh, at no point did I think, God, I wish I would have done work more and done this. All I could think about was, oh, my fucking wife, my kids, my friends. I just want to hang out with them. And, you know, so we don't do anything grand. We don't go on these big trips ever. <laughs> we just kind of, you know, we live our lives. We have our business and we try to, to enjoy things as much as possible. So, uh, and then it, it, could be, you know, it could be as simple as. Uh, us watching a TV show and just laughing or doing our own riff tracks thing and, and uh, stuff like that. So there you go. Yeah, I love that. I love that answer. And that's, that's something that I totally subscribe to as well. That you can have so much joy in just 
you know, watching watching your child playing with a toy and they don't even realize you're watching them, but you're there, yeah. you know, in pe- at peace saying, if I died right now, I'd be happy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I will say, you know, I remember at my very first apartment when I was 19 years old, I got my very first apartment. I, I remember thinking, you know, if I could work from home and write and do stuff with training, I'd be happy. That's the ultimate goal. It took a long time to get there. But if you could at 19 tell what kind of life, tell myself back then what kind of life I had, I couldn't even imagine how awesome it is. So uh, now granted, to be happy requires a shit ton of effort. Let's put it that way. Uh, you don't get happy without fucking being miserable for a long time and, and working. <laughs> and that's like, you know, everyone says be happy and enjoy yourself. Well, the way to do that is suffering for you know a lot of time. Uh, you know, people that come in this industry, you know, I tell them, you know, for three years I made $800 a month. It was fucking miserable. Like that's miserable fucking life, you know? And I just kept going and kept going. And then when the opportunity came, I was prepared. Uh, the best, I used to tell people this, when I first met Dave, he was, you know, elite FTS was not what it is today, but it was still pretty big. And, uh, he asked me cause he knew I had an English background. He said, do you have any articles that I could put up? I had written articles for years on my own preparing for that. I had stockade of articles for him. And uh, that's what you call knowing the, the opportunities there and yeah. prepping for it. So it's amazing how the opportunities always come to those who are prepared, right? So, yeah, exactly. Isn't there a quote about that? Like, yeah. Or opportunity favors the prepared. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. you know, there's an old saying that the master will reveal itself when the student is ready. Uh, you have you have to be you have to take it upon yourself to do everything possible to be uh, to be ready for that opportunity and that happened to me literally in football that's how I got on the field was being completely in, and uh, insanely prepared for something uh, that I had no idea until about two minutes before uh, before my big chance and I was like holy shit so all those years of training everything paid off in that one little moment. And that's what got me on the field for three years was that one stupid fucking moment that I could have, you know, just sloughed off or, and then I could have bitched the rest of my life about not having the opportunity to play football, but that was it. So, yeah. Uh, awesome. Anyway. All right. Well, I, another, another opportunity yeah. or, you know, a, a ch- achievement that we've done today is this is by far the longest interview I've had on this uh, podcast so far. So, which is, it was just amazing. Cause I, I've, was about to, you know, when we started, I'm like, okay, we're going to talk about strength training. And, and then we've, we've come over, you know, so many different uh, subjects from, you know, music and, and serving your community. And it's been a, a, a amazing conversation. So I've really, really enjoyed yeah, this. So I hope it's not too long, man. I apologize. I get a little. Oh, long. no, no. There's, there's no such thing as too long. No, I'm always, you know, wary of, of taking That's what my up, wife says. You know. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> So, so the closing one then is because uh, I want to make sure that, that we really underline this whole thing. So, where can people find the books? Um, you know, the the websites, all all the the arenas that you uh, you have out there. The uh, the home website is www. I think the, uh, or just jimwunder.com. You find it. Um, you just type my name into Google. It'll be the first uh, link, I believe. Uh, most of the books, with uh, exception of the last one, are on Amazon. Uh, most of the books with the exception of the last one are on Kindle too. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I have, you know, my regular Jim Wenner page and I have the, uh, my business page. That's the big one. 
Um, on Instagram, I don't, I post maybe once every two weeks or something. I don't know how people post every day. I'm not that exciting. And I try not to, uh, be anyone who I'm not, you know? Uh, so, uh, at least when I put something up, I try to make it something quality. Uh, we update the blog maybe once or twice a week, depending on, you know, time and stuff like that. Uh, we have a newsletter that goes out, but we maybe do one a month. We don't, uh, drown people out with that stuff. I don't think that's necessary. And I think it's annoying. And, uh, we, I just try to give as much as I can, uh, especially, uh, you know, as I get a little bit older, you know, I'm not putting up any videos of me squatting 900 pounds or anything like that. I just, that's not who I am right now. And, uh, so I just try to help out and, uh, hopefully at all levels, you can learn something. That's the main goal is to, to keep on passing the knowledge on. So brilliant. Well, I mean, you, you're helping the kids that you're coaching, you're helping a random British guy yeah. that moved to America and became a fireman. So your work is out there helping all kinds of people. Well, and uh, now through this podcast as well, you know, you're reaching out to all the people are listening, which is listened to in about 200 countries now. So you wow. may be, you know, reaching people in Nepal or, you know, that's cool. Kazakhstan, wherever. So Very it's pretty cool. cool. Well, glad to help, man. Thank you for the opportunity to do this. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm too lazy to have my own podcast. I don't know what to talk about. But but thank you for having me, and uh, best of luck, and stay safe, stay fit, stay happy, and uh, enjoy. And I hope hope this whole podcast business thing takes off, man. I hope it keeps on going for you. Well, I appreciate it. Let me know uh, when you finally decide the date that you're going to do the uh, the live show, and I'll I'll share it on my media too. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>